Oh, God. Welcome to the 10th episode of The Fishmongers. I am one of your co-hosts, Matt, and I am joined today by my two co-hosts. Howdy, I'm Kevin. Hey, I'm Leo. So for this week, we're going to be talking about fishes that live in colder climates because, well, winter is coming and we were thinking about cold weather and complaining about it quite a bit to each other. Um, So we decided to talk a little bit about fishes that live in these kinds of cold, nasty environments. I think we all got snow this week, right? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. This is like it actually snowed. Uh, it's snowing or was snowing when I came home uh, today. I'm just like, ugh. Yeah, we had snow out. all day long today. I did too. I don't think it was that bad for us, but still. Well, for those of the for those listeners that watch Game of Thrones or something, I often liken that I live here in Minnesota, kind of like at the wall. Essentially, I feel <laughs> like I'm on the yeah. the northern extent. <laughs> so yep. it feels like it's gotten pretty cold pretty fast all of a sudden. Yep. You and also then, like uh, go to those caves that are like all ice too. I don't know what that was that you guys went to that one time. Oh yeah, the like ice castle thing where it was like yeah, the whole thing made out of ice. And then harkening back to our last uh, our last episode, haven't you dressed up as one of those? Uh, you know, I can't remember one of those guys who defends the wall in the north. I did. I I did dress up as a Night's Watch for Halloween there once. You go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the Night's Watch. But it, you know, the town fair, I live I in is farther northern than Canada. Well, actually, the well, first then, episode of Game of Thrones I ever watched was uh, at your house, Leo. Yeah, I didn't watch it. It was like the see, it was like the series premiere. Actually, Caleb and I were visiting you, and mm-hmm. we watched it. We stayed up and watched it. You refused to watch it. It's a huge pop culture phenomenon. Speaking of pop culture phenomenons, unfortunately, Stan Lee died today, which is sad. Um, so maybe we should talk a little bit yeah. about fish-themed superheroes in honor of Stan Lee. Okay, I call out Aquaman because that's the only one I could name because I'm a superhero <laughs> nim, nim, imbecile among us. Well, uh, and I don't hate Aquaman as much as you guys do. It's like if you look at the notes, it, you're not the only one. Uh, you know, we had a real, real hard time coming up with any fish-related superheroes. I mean, granted, you know, maybe we're not the biggest of comic nerds, but between the two of us. You know, Matt and I have, you know, read our fair share of comics yeah, and we are struggling I, to come up with. I feel like with. we've read a lot of comics and yeah. there, there are not a lot of fish themed ones. I mean, like there's Aquaman, obviously, for DC and then Namor for Marvel, which Stanley, right. uh, which Stanley had a hand in creating. Um, but otherwise, there's not a lot of aquatic based yeah. superheroes. I mean, the only other ones I could think of, right, are ones that aren't like Marvel or DC, which is uh, Abe Sapien from Hellboy. Yeah, and which then, is definitely modeled uh, after like Creature from the Black Lagoon yes, type monster. Very much so. Yeah. But if he was a cool, like if he looked cool, sorry, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah, he's kind of like cyberpunk but, version of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, yeah, he just looked cooler than that. Well, because again, technology improved, a better suit, better... Um, uh, you know, better special effects, and of course the the mocap actor, right? Because he's the same guy who did the Shape of Water, right? Where basically he's playing Ape Sapien, but in a weird love story. Oh yeah, in the, in the movies, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think in the first movie, the voice actor is David Hyde Pierce from like Frasier. So, oh, is it? Yeah, I think in the first one. Oh, okay. I, think, I think in the second one, it's Doug Jones who does the actual like motion capture. But I think in the first one, it's David Hyde Pierce is the voice. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. Well, David Hyde Pierce definitely seems to be a good fit for that 
the what they were going for with the character. It's weird though, right? That they would have so few sort of superhero-y people, you know, coming from my perspective of the like not interested in comic books other than the movies. Like given that like from a Greek and Roman god perspective, there were actually quite a few aquatic ones or at least you know interested in the ocean i mean i do think that you know what i mean like it's a little weird yeah, yeah. Not that, like gods and superheroes are necessarily the same thing but like to my but mythologically wise yeah 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 gods and mythology are like the early forms of you know superheroes of today right i think that's a that's a safe comparison well certainly with aquaman there's a bunch of mythology about atlantis and things and i you know with the aquaman movie coming out right in december i i sense a fishmonger's podcast in the making for that so that (laughs) oh yes because we've all seen the trailers and i don't know about you guys i am already very very leery about how that movie is going to turn out i love aquaman so it's gonna be fine really you love aquaman i am a mighty triton did you guys like the picture i sent you of Dolph oh, Lundgren riding a seahorse? Yeah, well, I'd already seen that he was in it, and I was like, oh, Dolph Lundgren is really having a renaissance like this year, right? Because he's in that, and he's also in that new, uh, you know, the Creed sequel. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, exactly, right? So there's definitely a lot of fish, right? Because the, the two armies are riding, like, armored uh, sharks, giant sharks, and then armored giant seahorses. Yeah, and there's, like, like eurypterids and something. I think in the trailer you can see, like, eurypterids and other things. Uh-huh. There's all sorts of well, stuff Well, there's a Mosasaur. Right? Yeah. There's a, somebody riding a Mosasaur. And so, yeah, oh, yeah, there's going to be a lot of grist for the mill on that movie because, yeah. Yeah. That'll make for a good podcast. A what was that? <laughs> How could anyone ride a seahorse? It's, it's a giant seahorse. Awesome. And if you look I at the poster, yeah. you can actually see that it, even though it, obviously it's not like a seahorse at all, but it has humongous fangs and it's like piercing through the skin of like the of the snout of the seahorse. If you look at the poster and you're like, well, it's, it's like going through. It's like and it's like horrible Photoshop. It's just like piercing through the top of the snout. Well, maybe maybe it's like a, it's like the it's the warthog of like seahorses. Yeah. Right. Because don't some of those guys have like teeth that like, you know, punch through things. It, it, it just should not be a seahorse. I, that's the worst that's the least aggressive fish there is and like the worst swimmer ever like why would you ride it in the battle they can't well, I, swim I, at all I, I assume that the and again i'm not defending it because i'm I, i'm right there with you guys but i assume it was sort of like the natural progression of somebody who was doing the riding was, was oh we ride horses oh they're seahorses they ride seahorses <laughs> why not pony fish Yes. <laughs> yes. Why not? Why not pony fish, guys? Maybe they will in the movie. We haven't seen it yet. <laughs> yes, because they want to make it. Uh, they want to make it for an audience that's more than the three of us. Personally, I'm waiting for the sea monkeys to attack. Yes, they better be giant sea monkeys. Otherwise, you're gonna be like giant prehistoric sea monkeys. Sea monkeys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, we'll 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 see. I mean, I think Jason Momoa is like a good, you know, like a good casting choice for Aquaman. Definitely better than they could have done if they'd cast him like, you know, the stereotypical super friends, you know, um, Although, the Aquaman. If thing. they had gone that route, they should have cast somebody like Channing Tatum, like in the absence of Jason Momoa. Oh, they should, yeah, like yeah. somebody like Channing Tatum would have made a good like golden age version of aquaman kind of especially like if he played him kind of goofy like 21 jump street style a little clueless a little like right but i think that's real tricky and then given how like serious and dark and grim 
and dark the DC universe has been, it seems very unlikely. They, I mean, I would totally would have been down with that, right? Because Aquaman just seems like a character, yeah. except for Leo. Sorry, Leo. See, if, I, very if hard I was to a studio executive right now, I just had a billion-dollar idea. Like, Channing Tatum as Aquaman would have been gold. Mm-hmm. But no. I had underoos that were Aquaman. <laughs> The, the problem is, it's like, we were talking about this before, right? It's like, what? Aquaman is just a lame character. Were I, they scaled, like fish scale under roots? Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, he's got the weird Are you orange the under roots just the color scheme? They were like orange and green. So they were orange. No, that's, that's a terrible color scheme, by the way. I know orange is like your favorite color, but for the average human, orange and green is an awful color combination. Plus, his ability was – and this goes back to our thing, right, which is I think sort of like modern society is much more – Right, is like much more terrestrial focused. I mean, a part of it is probably because we're not, you know, going, you know, with the mythology thing. We weren't, we aren't like a, a very, you know, seafaring. I mean, I, I'm sure there's lots of reasons, right? But if you're like the Greeks, the ocean is super important. It's like this yeah. whole seafaring aspect for all your trade and everything. Important. Yeah, right. And for us, right, like maybe if superheroes had come about during like you know the height of the British Empire, right, that would be more of a big deal. But for us, right, we're not very you know, aquatic focus. And so Aquaman always ended up being a lame character because, oh, his, his abilities, he controls the water and he talks to like fish and other sea life. Well, most of the time, the he also other, swims underwater, breathes underwater and swims really fast. Why is yeah, Flash, all underwater? Flash right. And so even the, lamer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like so all the other characters are like terrestrial based. So they would either have to go into the ocean all the time for Aquaman to be useful or they would have which is what they ended up doing for the super friends. They'd have to come up with some contrived way to make it so that his powers. It's only half or more of the Earth. It's not that hard (laughs) to go in the water. Yeah. And then, of course, right, the problem always comes down to it's like, oh, right, you're on the super friends. It's like, what can you do again that Superman couldn't do better? Other than the talk to fish, which again, yeah, right, he talks is, to fish. They come and they he tells yeah. them their stories and they listen. Yeah, yeah. He gets the whales to help out. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. For for us fish nerds, that's totally awesome. Good luck again. I good luck to Aquaman. I hope it's successful. I'm just like I'm just explaining why culturally Aquaman is not taken off. It doesn't help that he he's his bright orange and green underoo outfit. <laughs> That I most sent of you a picture of it. So it was a bright orange shirt with scales with a big A on it, and then the underwear was uh, like. Oh wow! That was what you had. Yeah, this is. Yeah. Oh god, I'm. I'm so. Wait, what oh. age did you have this in? <laughs> yeah, that well, is I not. I still a... have the underwear. Um, <laughs> Leo's like still fits. <laughs> well, no, those are my high school colors. My brother and I got matching. Anyway, my brother and I went to a high school where green and gold were our colors, and so we have that. We bought matching underwear at H and M that matches that. Like, like right now, H and M. Like now, well, like around the whatever. time he got engaged, twenty years so ago like or whatever, nine, ten years ago, probably okay. ten or eleven years ago. When I was in second grade or third grade is when I had the underoos, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a good look for me then. But I liked the yep. orange shirt. I had a bright orange bedroom at that time. All the walls. My <laughs> parents had so much extra orange, they painted the bathroom orange. So, did you like Aquaman when you were a kid? Like, generally, like. The superhero? I did. I had a DC comic, uh, like, comforter. Maybe it was a sleeping bag. I used a comforter. I don't remember all the specifics. But um, And my brother and I colored some of them, much to my parents' chagrin. And uh, the only one we <laughs> messed with was Aquaman. I liked Aquaman. 
So to get back so to that- Stan Lee really quick, did you like Namor too, or did you not? Did any of you guys care about Namor at all? I've never heard. Do you of even Namor. know who Namor is? Yeah. Okay, I was about to say. Namor's like the Marvel version of Aquaman. Right. I cared about Namor probably less than Aquaman because Namor never had any kind of like big pop culture sort of platform that Aquaman did, though maybe that was for the better because mostly unlike Leo, that exposure to Aquaman just made me go, what the hell is going on here? Why is this guy in with the super friends? Because he was barely better than the Wonder Twins and Gleep. Barely. Looking at Namor, I I don't like his widow's peak and his dark hair when I was a kid. Although I don't have blonde hair now. When I was a kid, I had blonde hair, and I really related because mm-hmm. all the superheroes had dark hair except for Aquaman. Uh, well, I think I think initially too, Namor was an antagonist for like the Fantastic Four and and other characters. Oh, okay. Like he was, pre- I think he was introduced pre- at first as a villain, where Aquaman obviously was always kind of like a hero. Um, mm-hmm. But they had similar motivations in terms of like hating surface dwellers, etc., cetera, right. etc. Cetera. Protecting like, the sea, yeah, protecting the oceans. That. Like they they have very similar motivations, right. um, which seems to be well they're playing that up right for this new movie. That there's this you know coming war between the Atlanteans and the surface people for all the you know crap that we've dumped into the ocean. Mm-hmm. At least that's what I've gotten from the trailers. I mean, yeah, Namor was just had less. You know, he had just he just had less mind share or whatever term you want to call it. He just wasn't very prominent. Well, no, he's again, never nowadays, been in a movie. It's like he, he yeah. still has less mind share. And, and part of that is because right. the Fantastic Four movies have never really got off the ground since they were over at Fox. Mm-hmm. And maybe that'll change now. But right. Namor really has not could, been anything. Yeah, I mean, Namor is not somebody that you think could be a you know, that could be like a big, um, you know, like in a big movie. But if anybody could pull that off, right, the Marvel people could. Yeah. Cause, but at least on paper, Namor is like, oh, it's a guy in a Speedo with wings on his feet. Right? And then, <laughs> but like I had never heard of the Guardians of the Galaxy, and that's probably my favorite of the yeah, but that's, they, you know, yeah, but that's, one of them is literally a talking raccoon. So. Right, but that's my whole point, right? It's like if anybody could pull it off. It's the Marvel people, but I was just saying that on paper, Namor is like that, like a talking raccoon in a tree, right? It's like, it seems like it'd be difficult, but if anybody could do it, the people at Marvel could. I'm not sure that it's necessarily high on their priority list to I turn think, this dude into like, the next I, I bet within five years we'll see a Fantastic Four movie now. And yeah. they they should be able to pull that off well. I mean, a Fantastic Four movie done well should basically be like a live-action Incredibles. But right. I mean, the thing is that, like, Aquaman on the DC side, you know, is, like, top six or eight DC comics, and that makes sense that the movie's coming out because we've had the Wonder Woman, we've had right. Batman, Superman. He's a Justice League Green Lantern character. Yeah, I mean, like, he's, like, and there's just, like, I don't even know what you guys are talking about with this Namor thing. <laughs> like, well, Namor feels... Namor has been around a long time, but like Kevin said, he just hasn't had the mind share. And part of that's because he's based been tied to Fantastic Four stuff and Fantastic Four has also never really launched well in pop culture beyond just the comic book crowd. And I think, um, right, uh, Na- but Namor has the had his own... a problem too, right? 
<laughs> speedo. Just a speedo is a it's a simple outfit. costume. It's just a black speedo. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that Namor has like all. I don't know what they are because I again didn't pay attention at all. But I I assume Namor has alternate costumes that is more than just the banana hammock, right? And no, that's pretty much like that. it, really, right? Isn't that more or oh, less? That's his iconic. I know that's his iconic costume, but I assume that he has some alternate like battle armor that they. I could, feel like, like there would have been a time where like Orlando Bloom would have made a good Namor. <laughs> <laughs> like if he dyed his hair black, yeah, he would sure. have been like a good name more. Sure. Well, he does have all the aquatic abilities of Homo Mermanus. <laughs> sure. <laughs> is, 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 is that what it says on his Wikipedia page? Yes, whatever Homo Mermanus is. It's like an Atlantean, probably. <laughs> Really, they went with Mermanus, not Marinus. Uh, dis- uh, again, again, the taxonomist in me. I don't know about you guys. Mm, disappointing. I know, and his common name is the Submariner. Yeah, yeah, right. Yes. That's, so uh, that's a subtitle. Directly with they the Avengers, it. the Fantastic Four, the Invaders, the Defenders, and the X-Men, as well as the Illuminati. Well, he's he's had his own comic book, right? He just hasn't yeah. really, in the past, various iterations. But for... I would like to say obvious reasons has he has not taken off as a big. I, I but again, bet there's maybe like, the Marvel people. Do I bet there's with a him. there's a devoted Namor fan base out there. I'm sure that that is true. But like, yeah, in terms of movies or something, he's never taken off. Yeah, or even been featured he, really. Right, and if Philip you, Kaufman was in discussions with Marvel developed Namor colon Submariner in 1997 with Sam Hamm to write the script, but the already never materialized. Well, I mean, as long as he, he wasn't scheduled to play Namor, right? It'd be like, oh, I guess maybe he has an interesting take on this. Again, if you were to give me like a list of like, oh, here are the, like, uh, you know, like w- what movies, uh, you know, or what characters do you want to see show up in the Marvel Universe? Namor is not in the top 50 or 100, probably. Namor's rights belong to Universal Pictures. Yeah, it's like, you know, Stanley created a ton of characters, but even he was like, no, I'm good with all these like sea fish based ones. I'm going to pass on that. He created Squirrel Girl or whatever, but it was like, nope. Actually, I don't know. Did he create? But anyway, right? He created characters like that, but was like, nope. Not gonna have any kind of fish-related thing. There's also so few like aquatic bad guys too, even in Marvel. Even if you think about like all the X Men that like Stanley was involved in creating and things, it's just like there's hardly any aquatic X Men. There's like there's very few aquatic anything in Marvel stuff. Right. Exactly. There's just- I think there's just few aquatic. You know, like super, like sea or water based. Like I can think of like Hydro Man, who's basically like Sandman, like Spider Man, bad guy. Yeah, he turns into water, oh, really? just like Sandman turns into sand. Okay. But he's not fish based; right. he just turns into That's water. A deep cut, because I yeah, I never heard of that guy. I, mean, I was thinking that I'm stretching other, here, and I can't think of very many. So I was thinking that you're talking about like some other ones that could fall into this, but they're also DC are like Animal Man because he could talk to animal, right, including fish. And then um, from the Teen Titans, what's his name? The green guy. Um, is it Changeling? Oh, Changeling. Yeah, I could change or Beast Boy. Beast Boy. That's his name. Well, I wait. I thought it was Changeling. Uh, I think he goes Maybe by they. both names. OK, but you know who I'm talking about. This is not this is no, not a comic. No, OK, sorry. It's not, well, Matt knows it's like, right. It's the green guy from Teen Titans. Right. Teen yeah. Titans has a huge like, you know, presence in pop culture. Yeah. So, yeah, he could, I guess, theoretically turn into a fish, which, again, would happen very rarely because they would Teen Titans would spend very little time in the water. How about Aqualad? <laughs> Aqualad. 
I just like Googled a list of top 15 aquatic superhero characters. And number one is Namor and number two is Aquaman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then number three is a character you've never heard of. Number four is a character you've never heard of. Right. It's like I, I tried the same thing but to prepare for this. And literally outside of like the ones we've already named, every other one was I have no idea who this is. I would have to look up their Wikipedia entry. Well, unfortunately, like, Stanley didn't create Namor either. Right, because so, Namor actually, I think, predates he predates Aquaman, so he's actually like a very old character. That yeah. I mean, obviously, Stanley like, played a role like, by Yeah, he was the, created by Bill Everett in 1939. Was Namor? Yeah, because yeah, so. I think Aquaman was in the 40s, and so right, because most people think like, oh, Namor is like some kind of like you know like knockoff of Aquaman. Technically, I think he was before Aquaman. It's just that nobody knows who the hell he is. Yeah, he just looks like an aquatic version of Bella Lugosi. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> with fewer clothes. Fish specific. I think I found myself remarkably sad. I'm not a comic book person, but I was actually sad. And it's been kind of fun to watch the people relate to the memories of Stanley. So. Yeah, I think oh, it is yeah, sad. Yeah. I mean, like I like I sent you guys a photo of my like Stanley origin book from like the 70s mm-hmm. or something. It's just I I have been reading comics forever and I have thousands of comics downstairs in my basement. So like I I found it sad. Like yeah. I have a Stanley Dograph photo too. Oh really? Oh wow. Yeah. Is it just him or is it like are you in the photo with him? No, I'm not in the photo. It's a it's a drawing of a bunch of Spider-Man characters that he created uh, and then he okay. autographed the photo. My brother got oh, it nice. for me like 2 years ago. Nice. Well, because I, I still remember when I first started reading comic books, like Stan Lee was like the editor of Marvel back then. He was still the editor back then. And so he would actually like in different issues would have like a letter from the editor talking about like the state of Marvel and stuff like that. And obviously he then transitioned, to, you know, they replaced him with other people and he hasn't, you know, wasn't really sort of directly comic books related. But yeah, Stan Lee was like a huge deal for me, you know, when I was a kid and really big into comic books. So you know, we're trying to honor that, but then realize that in doing the background for this, oh, there is a there is a, a dearth of like sea, you know, ocean based or fish based <laughs> characters. Yeah, which what despite, we can infer from you know, this is he did not really have a much of an interest in the oceans, <laughs> right? But unlike but like, you know, Leo's human, trying to stir he's things like up. Way better human than the average human, and had a way bigger impact. And so, oh much. yeah, he was way ahead of the curve okay. on all the civil rights stuff, and like all the X Men, you know, kind of analogies for human rights and all sorts of things. Like he was definitely way ahead of the curve on stuff. Right, the civil rights stuff, and right, the so mutants as an analogy for you know like oppressed minorities. But I, you know. Again, right, to, to honor Stan Lee, but let's not also forget, right, there is some controversy or some, you know, sort of ill feelings about, you know, what, you know, his falling out with Jack Kirby and how Jack Kirby feels that in many ways, right, Stan Lee, you know, contributed to Jack Kirby not getting the credit or the sort of, you know. Well, there's always battles over credit, but like the real Jack the Kirby gets, yeah, the financial you know, to, part, I think, is where Jack Kirby's right, estate is, Right. He's upset, but like I think Jack Kirby gets a lot of credit too. Oh, financially, yeah, does he get as much? Like I, I don't know. Right. I don't know the details of all of that exactly, but but certainly, like in the in the annals of history, people will always talk about Jack Kirby. Um, oh yeah, yeah. And again, I'm not. I don't want to badmouth Stan Lee, right? But I also do do want to say that it's not all you know. It's not all sort of like, you know, uh, you know, uh, sunshine and puppies and stuff like that. But for, right? for listeners who may that, not know or like I don't, I don't know how much Leo knows about the 
Jack Kirby, Stan Lee stuff, but Stan Lee did a lot of the writing and script writing, and Jack Kirby did a lot of the initial illustrations. And there were other Marvel illustrators that are pretty famous that also helped, but Stan Lee was credited with a lot of the script writing and some of the mm-hmm. character development, and Jack Kirby did a lot of the drawings. So you get to that point of, like, who who created what characters or like what went into creating characters when one person's doing the drawings and the other person's, you know, basically writing their personalities. Right. So they're they're, they're Jack Kirby. I don't know what you guys are talking about at all. He's like an illustrator. Like he, and Steve, that was all clear. I understand that. I'm just saying like, but there are other famous ones too. Like like when you think of like Spider-Man and it's like, Oh, he's got a red and blue suit with spider webs and like big white eyes. Jack Kirby is responsible. Right. It's like, and Steve Ditko. I mean like it it depends. There's a a whole suite of people like that, that work together. But, but you know, from each other's perspective, Stan Lee would say, well, I helped design the character because I told him to draw something with a red and blue suit or I, you know, he's the one who came up with the backstory and the other people would like just, not taking anything characters. away from Stan Lee, right? Oh, but yeah, it's no, like the it's, artist, there's that like, interplay there. Right. Between that collaboration, so you get to those things of, like, who came up with what. But It's, but it's it, hard to be Lennon and McCartney. I mean, yeah. it, it is. Mm-hmm. Like, yep. one of, like, all, you know, Stuart Copeland and, and Sting, right? Like, nobody yeah, it's, it's just like the that. Guitarist. Like, lots of, you know, it doesn't happen with both without both of them. Like, yeah. And it sucks that they can't go on forever because of what seem like petty things later, but like it matters. Yeah. Like, you know, I get it. And then also in Stan Lee's defense, right? Um, it's not like he benefited financially from this, right? The rights to all those characters Marvel owned. And so he didn't really get much of a windfall. I mean, obviously we are all familiar with him now cause he shows up or he did right before his unfortunate passing, but it's like, you know, he would show up in cameos and everyone knows who he is. And he's like an ambassador for like comic books and stuff like that. But you know, he didn't really benefit that much from having created but I knew all his name characters. in 84, right? It's yeah. like, yeah, I'm a moron. and don't know anything. Like he had a right. tremendous name recognition. Right. Well, so I, then I, it goes into, I do think that sorry. like, it's, it's hard to discount his, um, the, you know, he's famous for his storytelling, and his storytelling took on a lot of roles that, at the time, a lot of comic books didn't do. And so that's the right. part of him that, like, probably where a lot of his legacy will be, is, like, making mm-hmm. stories about high school students that don't fit in or right. about mutants who don't fit into society because of this or that. Like, his, the morality of his stories, I think, is what will be kind of remembered more than almost right. anything. Right, he added nuance, right, and he broadened the kinds of characters that were superheroes because prior to that you had people like superman and batman right who are these sort of like idealized versions of superheroes and then yeah like you were saying right you get this sort of broader swath of people who are like oh they have you know issue like sort of more real life issues that you tend not tended not to see in comic books before then he did a lot of pretty i don't know impressive stuff and it's kind of sad it's kind of it's like losing walt disney or something Mm-hmm. Like it's, I mean, he had a pretty big cultural impact and it's, you know, for me, like when I was young reading all these comics, like it wasn't per se like cool to read comic books back then. And now it's like, you know, Avengers movies or something are like these events that everyone goes and see. But when I was reading Avengers comics, and I think that's probably true of most people when they were younger reading them, it was not exactly the cool thing to do, right? So oh, like, no, it's, no, right. That was it, like the peak nerd geek like activity. That, yeah. Yeah, yeah. People were like, it, it was like that and playing D and D, right? Which we all did as kids. Right. But it was also the thing where everyone was like, oh. But it's it's just interesting that like his this kind of legacy now has had such a huge impact on popular culture in a way that 
you know, I think is actually fairly kind of surprising at this point. Like it's really developed into something a lot bigger than what one might have thought it would have been even like 15 years ago. And I think even Stan Lee, right, admits that, right, that comic books became way bigger than he ever thought that they would be because – um, you know, like he, I think, originally started with the idea that he was going to be like a novel, right? You know, like the like a novelist or something like that, and was doing the comic book things as just sort of like to pay the bills. Um, and then even right back then, in the same way that they didn't have much, I don't know how to describe it. They didn't have much impact, or people didn't treat them very seriously. Oh yeah, they were not treated as like serious things. And even still, like you talk to some people, and you're like, <clears throat> oh, I read these comic books, and they're like, oh, right. Like there's still <laughs> there that little yeah. bit of air to it. But the reality right. is, like, it has as much of impact on anything, and like for a lot of people, is pretty inspirational. Yeah, I mean, I like the was it Seth Rogen tweet today. Like I thought that that was like about as nice as a thing anyone oh, yeah. could ever say. Like he wrote, like, thank you, Stanley, for making people who feel different realize they are special. No, I was just going to say, right, I think a lot of it, too, was because back then, you know, sort of uh, things that nerds and geeks were into weren't, um, you know, were kind of looked down upon, right? That idea that, oh, you know, even though you're ostracized, you still have some kind of value or you can contribute to society. And that maybe, you know, you're not a superhero, right? But that you have like, you know, some hidden abilities or some skills that can make things better kind of thing, right? I think that's why it was so successful, right? It spoke to the nerds and the people who were sort of like, you know, sat in the corner of the lunchroom and basically were, you know, not the cool, you know, not the cool uh, crowd, well, the the idea that you're making a superhero like a human, right? Like like Spider-Man or something. Like the idea that, you know, in contrast right. to Superman that basically just does whatever he wants, has this like dream job, but your your superhero right. character is this human with actual problems, like mm-hmm. has to figure out how to pay the rent and that right. how being a superhero doesn't just like change your entire life in the ways you think it would and they still have all these like normal problems that normal people would have or the or same with like x-men the you know all these kind of analogies to civil rights movements like x-men became such a symbol for all kinds of things um and that was pretty you know when they're writing those comics in the 70s and you look at them now it was pretty different like Mm -hmm. people were not doing that right it yeah it was just you know it was it made them relatable and it made them you know, more interesting, right? Instead of being these sort of godlike figures, you're like, oh, this is what it would be like if you were just a person who somehow had these extra abilities or gifts, right? That they they had lives outside of being the superhero. Yeah, they were using the comics to tackle some pretty serious real-world issues when prior to that, comics were a lot of escapism or maybe there were a lot of things like detective stories or horror mm-hmm. stories. There was that whole period of like, well, this is a sci-fi story, this is a detective story, right. this is this. Not that those didn't tackle issues themselves, but this was kind of different. It was it was definitely making it more approachable or more... Um, more in line with what was currently happening, but also on some level things that are still happening now. Um, like X-Men, I think probably is still pretty relatable in terms of mm-hmm. like discrimination against people that are different. Right. Well, I mean the, uh, the, the whole thing, right. I think, I, mean, I think it's fairly well acknowledged, right. It's like the, the split between professor X and Magneto was supposed to reflect the split between uh, Martin Luther King and uh, Malcolm X, right. Yeah. Right. The idea of it's like, Oh, do you try peaceful means to resolve your issues? Or are you going to be like more sort of militant and aggressive about how you deal with these kinds of problems? Yeah. No. And it's obviously like from my perspective as someone that hasn't also read a lot of literature, but <laughs> necessarily, but like compared to Harrison Bergeron and the Incredibles and things like that, the idea of like, you know, that was all 
all that stuff was coming out in the 60s from, you know, the Civil Rights Act really had an impact at many different levels. And it's, you know, if you look back on it from my perspective, it's kind of amazing what Stanley was willing to in the, kind of hide <laughs> in the superior part, but as well as explicitly write out in some of the little textual blurbs in a lot of his things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was really putting himself out there on some of those issues. As like the head of a corporation, which was, you know, that's not that common. But I think that that uh, you see that a lot, right? That um, uh, people are able to hi- uh, hide those kinds of... Uh, I don't of know pretend- if I would go a lot. <laughs> yeah, but it's like... Yeah, occasionally. Not, it's sorry, not, uncommon. not frequently, but as in like when those kinds of potentially controversial issues crop up, that it's easier to hide it in something fantastical or science fiction, right, as a, some kind of, I don't know, like a parable or something. And then that way it's less um, uh, like I don't, polarizing or controversial. What was that? Like Harrison Bergeron is like that. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a very science fiction dystopia kind of situation. Right. So, yeah. No, but I mean, you know. That makes him have a lot more impact than maybe you would think a comic book writer, illustrator, idea guy would have had. Well, it's really like for me, you know, of those kind of people growing up, I would say like of name recognition, it was like Stan Lee, you know, Walt Disney or like, you know, for me, video game stuff like Shigeru Miyamoto. Like those right. are probably the three that I associate with all of this like suite of things, right? Like, like right. in my head, as far as DC goes, there wasn't like a single person to point to like no. Stan Lee style. Like you could right. think of some like, you know, like Bob Kane for Batman right. or certain things, but you right. know, they were like one-offs or they mm-hmm. had hands in other things, but like Stan right. Lee had this like, you know, omnipresent kind of personality, just like mm-hmm. Shigeru Miyamoto does for, for Nintendo or like Walt Disney does for obviously Disney. Um, But I I feel like he's up there with those kinds of people for those respective mediums. Yeah. He was the face of Marvel for a long time. Yeah. In a way that DC did never have. Yeah. I don't feel like DC has ever had that. It's a sad day. It is sad. It's definitely sad. I guess. Should we talk about some cold fishes now? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> because There's it is some cold activity out there. there. Yeah. Yes, let's do a sudden, you know, subject shift hard left. to the yeah. thing. Yeah, we exactly. intended to talk about fishes that live in cold habitats, but, you know. Yeah. It's hard not yeah, to well, talk about the Stan Lee thing since it just happened right, today. It happened and today, so, and it's, yeah, yeah, it was a big deal because we were talking about it. Yeah. So but when yes, you guys so think of polar fish, what do you think about? Antarctic ice fish. Yeah, that seems to be, like, the first obvious one. But I also right, like I to mean, think, like, I always think about the sad fish that live around here and all the lakes that have to go down deep, right? you know, and, like, spend all of the winter in, like, this, like, under the ice, like, well, and around where I live, there's all the eel pouts, like, there's the eel pout festivals and stuff, so, and for Which listeners, actually, eel pouts are, like, a freshwater cod, essentially. Right, I was about to say, this is why, like, uh, you know, common names are terrible, because eel pouts, at least for me, I'm, I'm thinking they're this marine group, right? Zoarsids and their relatives. And so it's like eel pout. No, that's not what an eel pout is. There is but something then, yeah. weird about it that it's like the only freshwater like gadiform right. when there's so many species right. of gadiforms. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, right. load up. It, it's kind of interesting. Load up, there's load a lot up, of papers that are trying to split them into four to six species, though. Well, I okay. can believe that, I guess, because of their range, sure. but... I, I mean, I could see why somebody would want to split them, but still, like that's still not a lot because <laughs> it's such a. Well, 
Yeah, like, yeah, it would. That's just splitting hairs. That's like splitting. Family. That's like when they split the giraffe into like seven species a couple oh, years ago. Yes, it's like yes. you're like, yeah, 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 okay, fine, but like it's still a giraffe. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so really, it comes down to what's interesting is that there there appears to have been a single invasion of freshwater yeah. by the forms, and then they may have diversified there if you recognize more than one species. Yeah, but it's just such that, a it's such a species rich lineage overall, and then like. There are so many things that are successful in freshwater generally, and then there's just this like one cod. Um, Do they taste like fish sticks, like the rest of them? <laughs> I've never. Or what make up fish sticks for those? I've never them. eaten yep. one yet. There, but I do want to go. Like, there's this big festival around here. It happens in yeah. February, and I think I'll go yeah, this totally. year. Yeah, totally. Um, That's on you because you're the. Otherwise, you're the failure of the three of us. Oh, you could come visit no, and we go. We have no Loda Loda festival here in Lawrence. <laughs> yeah, we do not. Yeah, neither do we have it here in Michigan. They call it the Lada Loda Festival. No, I'm just kidding. But they should. Yeah. You should <laughs> no. trademark it. You should trademark that. Hashtag, Look into that. Nice try. Maybe I'll start my own. I'm going to start my own festival, yeah. the Lada Loda. Yeah. Get it? Go, Loda, uh, Loda, go Loda, copyright Loda. that or trademark it or whatever, and then start pushing your uh, festival. Yeah. But I, I kind of agree with what you said that I, you know, at the end of the day, when you think polar fish, almost everybody's going to think of, uh, with no offense to the Loda Loda. Yeah, they'll all think ice fishes. We think yep. of Antarctic ice fishes, and the, yeah. they're super. The thing that like, I say lots and lots of things about them in class, but the only thing that ever like gets people super excited is the like lack of hemoglobin in Chinichthyidae. Or well, that's Chinichthyidae. definitely what they're famous for. Right. Yeah, which apparently they, right is just like an. I can't remember what this paper was, right? But it's sort of like a happy accident. They lost it, and they happen to be in this one environment where they have these other adaptations where it's not a big deal. Right, but it's not directly tied. At least I may be misremembering this. It's not like directly tied to their cold water environment. Like they evol- like they lost it as an evolutionary sort of advantage in very cold waters. I think it's actually a two step process, but yeah, effectively, yeah. Like okay, like I think it was lost a couple times, and then some amount of interbreeding led to a situation where they lost you know they had multiple alleles eventually leading to a situation where all the alleles lacked hemoglobin and so their blood mm-hmm. is like white right it's that's kind of cool yeah. um, but they're already way like the clade itself is already way deep in the antarctic by that point it's like mm-hmm. they're near you know it's kind of one of those things that's weird like we don't really think about it but they're some of their closest relatives not their absolute closest relative but some of the near ones are some freshwater fishes like in new zealand and things like that in the pseudofridae mm-hmm. like like one of the weirdest kind of relationships we see over and over again as we like kind of get a revised view of the phylogeny of fishes is Antarctic fishes often have freshwater North American close allies. And it mm-hmm. makes, or in that case, it's New Zealand. But even then, you back yeah. out a little bit and you're already back in the perches. I mean, it's really weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're have. in that larger right. They're like kind of in your wheelhouse, Leo. They're in that larger group that also includes things that you wouldn't ever think about as being, you know, close to them, right? Darters and perch and stuff like that. Like right, walleye. but it's, you see the you see the same thing. Like the snailfishes are another big group around Antarctica, mm-hmm. and you know, like they have freshwater close relatives. Mm-hmm. So the sculpins in North America and Eurasia and Europe. You know, I mean, it's 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 a really strange, you know, like. I would guess that between the snail fishes and the notothenioid, the ice fishes, those are the two main groups. And probably next is probably like mctophids around Antarctica. I mean, like, hey, there's some lizard fishes there. 
<laughs> yeah, but I mean, like in terms of species across ichthys. Yeah, in terms of species numbers. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's probably yeah. <laughs> it's probably lanternfishes at the family level, whatever that means. Like third. Yeah. Like, like you know, it's it's an interesting thing that a lot of the closest relatives of Antarctica and that you know even some of the South American, Australian things like uh, some of the persichthyids and persiliids, their closest relatives are centrarchids in North America. I don't, I can't explain that pattern to save my mm-hmm. life, but it's repeated. Yeah. You know, well, there's really a lot of spiny raid stuff and like a lot of, I mean, obviously Antarctica went through a, a number of different changes since the Cretaceous. I mean, pre-Cretaceous, it was kind of a happening place to be with dinosaurs and, you know, real estate that one would want to live on, which is different than right. now. And so, oh, po- yeah. <laughs> it's a lot warmer then. Right. Yeah. And so like post KT boundary, the habitat there changed and like for what it's worth, it probably opened up a niche that these ice fishes moved into <laughs> and mm-hmm. have obviously succeeded at where a lot of other things there. I mean, there are lots of like, like there, there are groups of fishes there, but they're not necessarily as species rich, like you said there, but there are a lot of number of like one offs or things mm-hmm. that are isolated to the Southern hemisphere. Um, but Yeah. Well, the other thing, right, besides the lack of hemoglobin that always, um, you know, makes people think about those guys is that they have those specialized, uh, you know, antifreeze proteins that allow them to exist in the water that is, you know, effectively below freezing. Well, a number of them sit pretty close to the surface, right, where the water is colder, because once they get to depth, like a serious depth, the temperature starts to stabilize quite a bit. But these fishes are sitting up near the surface where it's a lot colder. I mean, some of them are at a deeper depth, but like, isn't that what more or less makes them a little bit different here where they are, they are closer to the surface where it's actually like there's ice. Um, and that water is temp- usually more inhospitable for the average fish. Right. And they have weird <laughs> like adaptations, right, where some of them are super cooled so they can't come into contact with like ice crystals or something because then they might just like solidify out instantly if they bump into stuff right there's lots of sort of weird things that are going on because they're at that extreme edge of what's you know livable for a vertebrate yeah i mean some of them are but i mean some of them aren't i mean but i mean as a group only the gadidae and the notathenoids have the like actual glycoprotein antifreeze proteins and then I think once you get into like non-glycoprotein antifreeze proteins, you get a lot of things. You get, I think, herring, some smelt. So herring are like clupeids, smelt, the nosmeridae. And then once you get into like spiny rayed fishes, you get them in some of the like winter flounders and flounders. Uh, some of the, even some wrasses have them. Um, mm-hmm. And then a bunch of things that are in my wheelhouse, like eel pouts in the Zoarsidae, snailfishes in the Liparidae, uh, some of the sea ravens that are either hemi- hemitripterids or agonids, depending on who you are, and then uh, some of the deep-water sculpins that are either psychroludids or, I guess they're always psychroludids, but they're mine's a larger sense of psychroludidae than others, right. but I think they're all psychroludids proper. So you do right. see it a lot in a lot of different groups, but I think the gadids... And the Antarctic ice fishes, the, so the cods and Antarctic ice fishes are the dominant groups that people think about. So, what is it? Uh, do you think about the glycoproteins that somehow make it have? Ha, ha, is there anything about the chemical nature of the glycoprotein antifreeze that has somehow made them more successful in this environment, or is it just luck of the draw? Uh, the, it's definitely more effective, right? So, 
you know, it's not superhero versus hero or something, but it's they can <laughs> yeah, go so a little yeah, explain. <laughs> they can, yeah, explain. I, I assume how, it can yeah. be a little. I mean, I think they can be a little shallower to get back to your point. But it's, I mean, the basic idea with any of these things is that the, you know, the the antifreeze proteins bind to the ice crystals and it prevents them from going into larger ice crystals. I mean, that's so if they were an X Men, they would be Iceman. That's like <laughs> they. <laughs> Leo's like, sure, let's go with that. I mean, there's a bunch of things you can do, right? You can increase increase various chemicals to do better in colder water. But, like, the main thing that the antifreeze proteins do is prevent you from getting, like, an iceberg forming within your cells, causing you to rip open and die. You basically Right, because it's get, like, the formation ice of ice crystal, crystals. And yeah. then you can, like, prevent them from attaching to another one. It's like a... Right. Like, because you know, they they, off, they kind of insert themselves ice. right and then prevent the ice matrix from actually forming like they normally would. I think it actually like correct? kind of wraps around it like individually oh, okay. they bind on the outside so it's kind of like a bunch oh. of you know in a simple view it's like an ice crystal starts forming kind of let's pretend that those are hexagons or something like that mm-hmm. um, and they start like expanding and it would expand out and basically freeze everything but instead of that these little slinky like spring spring things attach on the outside and so don't allow an additional hexagon to come in and so they just get a bunch of you know relatively smallish ice crystals forming everywhere so they have little snowflakes inside them and never actually turn to ice right it's like it's not slippery or whatever make your analogy out on the road right like snow is not slippery but ice is slippery right like they basically have snow inside them instead of like forming like a layer of ice that you can't pick up anymore they're they're like little flakes independent not packed down, not solidifying any of that kind of thing. Hmm. That's that a very sense. cool system. So is there also yeah, um, a role there where they're, um, they're effectively like by adding these extra proteins into their uh, bloodstream that it's uh, kind of like salting the roads, right? You lower the freezing, um, you lower the freezing temperature so that you can uh, stay liquid um, at a, a sort of a larger range of temperatures. Yeah, I mean, it functionally acts that way. I mean, it's like a little different chemically, but like, no. it's amazing how much of a difference the salt matters. Just like a few degrees here, like just with like with these fish, like a few degrees, mm-hmm. you go like, well, what's two degrees? It's like a big difference. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? Like suddenly every other vertebrate is dead, and you're the only thing surviving. Right. Right. Like, and it's the same thing. It's like, well, okay, we dropped the temperature of like uh, you know this ice forming by four or five degrees. Well, it turns out like. 85% of the time, that means that none of the ice is forming, right? That's why salt is better than sand, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Like, it's amazing how much, how, right? Because it's a chemical need, yeah. It matters. Yeah, it's amazing how close we are to where it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Like, a few degrees here or there. And that's why, like, climate change or anything like that seems like, oh, it's only a few degrees. Well, like, that few degrees is the difference between, like, nobody's it's pretty crucial. On, the, on the, yep highway today but i mean that's a constant um that's a constant theme right in you know biology and evolution right it's like Like you just have to so operate in such a small temperature window and the scale of temperature changes you know a few degrees matters a lot a lot you know that's the difference between a fever and normal temperature i mean like it's just a few degrees matters (laughs) like and it includes in this freezing right on this freezing cusp you know that's why there's a million of them out there yeah, pretty cool radiation of so fishes. What else do you guys think about when you think about like polar fishes? Leo's got a oh, fever, and the only cure is more ice fishes. <laughs> more cowbell. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So what else do you think about? Like, what do you else do you guys talk about when you talk about polar fishes? Lagiacristic these. Well, tell us about Lagiacristic. Yeah, what is it named after? There's not that much to say. There's only one of them there. Uh-huh. <laughs> they so eat so all yeah, those lairnfish that are hanging out what's there. special about? Oh, okay. They're eating all of them. Yeah, they're eating the lairnfish. Really? Yeah. Oh, no, I don't think they're eating any fish. ice fishes, but they're probably eating lairnfishes. Okay. So what that is was it? a deep sea fish, like it's a pearl eye fish, but it's restricted okay. in its distribution um, to waters in and around Antarctica. All but right. it's pretty cool because somebody named it after a you know a video game character. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Somebody. So yeah, what's the etymology and who is this somebody? I don't know. He's you know he's pretty cool. He read a lot of comic books and he likes Stan Lee. <laughs> cool, <laughs> and he cool likes you say? Video huh? games. <laughs> yeah. The etymology yeah, okay. is after yeah, a giant okay. like sea lizard. <laughs> From what video game? The Monster Hunter video games. Okay, all right. Because I still remember the uh, the conversation from the other end from one of your co-authors who was like, "Oh, okay, this is named after like some like mythological creature." And then he's like, "Okay, okay." And then he tried to like look it up, and he's like, I- "I'm not finding this. W- what is this Lagia crusta? You know, like <laughs> whatever the name was." And finally, got you to admit that it's like, "Oh, it's from Monster Hunter." Yeah, it's from a video game. I do think it's I think interesting. It was a reviewer. Yeah, that record. was that yeah. was a reviewer. Oh, was a reviewer? That was, yeah, a reviewer okay, was like, complaining about the. Yeah, that was that was a reviewer. Um, but I do think that there's this interesting thing where, like, and it's kind of come up a little bit recently. Um, you know, it just comes up every now and then when somebody names something new that's based on pop culture. But you do occasionally get people that are like, oh, they're grumpy about new names being named after something in pop culture mythology. But at the same time, like. I don't names see a problem names. with that, right? Like, yeah, names are names. And, like, we've been naming things oh. off of after mythology or pop culture of the time forever, right? Like, how many things right. are named after dragons or, like, or, or some other feature that had to do with mythological properties or, like, religious properties or some other mythology, right? Like, it's just kind of... One uh, of my I, favorite ones... Oh, sorry. Oh, no. No, I was just going to say, like, I just don't see what the problem is. Like, I don't get it at all. Right. Like one of my favorite ones like that was there's um, and I'm probably screwing this up because it was years ago. I remember seeing this article, but they named um, one of those spiders that can throw a blob of like silk at their prey items to catch them after a famous baseball pitcher, Dizzy Dean. And I thought that was cool. Seemed very appropriate. Yeah, I I just don't have a problem with it. I mean, yeah, I don't either fight over various things, but I'd like you shouldn't name it after like. Like, there's no shortage of people that, in their own little political nightmarish, name things after one, you know, especially in America, after one political party, like some prominent person at the time or not, and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a problem with that either. Like, people should do whatever they want. But, like, for sure, you know, people name them after, like, like Bill Richards, who I have all the respect in the world, like, took all the initials of all of his kids and made up a word out of the eight initials or whatever from his four kids, like their middle names and first names. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's pretty high up on the, like, weird thing. But we name lots of things after people. And why is naming it after a rich donor, you know, like, back in the day or anything well, I mean, worse or better? That still happens today, right? Like, there's yeah, examples. Right, that where definitely it's like, still happens now. We named it after, you know, whatever, you know, some name. It's like, and they were whatever critical for the, you know, expedition that, like, you know, that uh, they you know helped fund the expedition that collected this new species or something like that. I mean, I always think about the Templeton Crocker expedition for fishes that like two people donated mm. all the money Templeton and Crocker and they must Crocker have Crocker Eye and yeah, they must have had I mean four hundred fish named after him for that thing, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, like that's why I kind of 
relegated to some history in the time in the past. But like, yeah, absolutely, people still do that, and like, there's no shortage of people, you know, trying putting names for sale. Like, if you give us twenty thousand dollars, we'll name this fish after you, and things like that. Well, that's um, where it gets a little kind of like. Ugh. But it's no different. Like, I mean, yes, like the the relative when the money is paid, but like it is 100% exactly the same as the Templeton Crocker. It's just one's pay to play and one is like. Right. But I think that that makes, uh, at least in my mind, I think that that makes a difference, right? Somebody's like, oh, I'm interested in this thing. I'm willing to give you some money for it. It's like, oh, yeah, as a byproduct of this, I'll get some stuff named after me versus like somebody's like, you know, buying, you know, like buying this thing. And I don't know, there's just something. It's like yeah, exactly. not funding the expedition that like found the thing. It's it's right. Kind it's of like, like oh hey, we found this thing and we're auction. Yeah, we're auction. And then there's something weird right from the scientist perspective end of it too. Where it's like oh we have this new species we're going to auction it off for like money right. There's something it's like Fallen Kingdom. About that. It's like some auction right, but for names. <laughs> it doesn't bother me. Like whatever we need to do is fine. I, I understand why. Yeah, where I have coming a, from right. I so. Totally, the, the, Right, but that argument, it's like, oh, we can, whatever we need to do to get money to get this thing funded is also, I think, a dangerous sentiment, right? Oh, that's because not what I mean. You, I, just like, I just don't care what people – people should name it, whatever. If they have a new species and they found it, I don't care what they name it. Is That's like the moral Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think the names are – I think the names are pretty open, right? So as long as, as long as it's a publishable name, you know, I don't see why we should police it too much. Oh, though I do have one like this is like my bugaboo. It's totally allowed by the uh, by the code is uh, hyphens in names. Why? No, I, uh, just they irritate the hell out of me. Is that common? I feel like I've never seen that. Uh, X punctata. Uh, there, it's totally allowed. Gracie. There's a what was that? Why Gracium? Arctoscopus? Why Gracium? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a there's a bunch of them. There's, it's not super common, but it is allowed in the code. And every time I see it, I'm like. Mm, couldn't you have named it something else that didn't require a freaking hyphen in here? We'll have to Sorry, make sure to name one Kevin Tang. Kevin hyphen yeah. Tang. <laughs> yeah, Kevin hyphen Tang. Yeah, no, it's just there's something about it for whatever reason, like the aesthetics of it bothers the hell out of me. I can't really explain it, but it's just like a thing that like always nags at me every time I see it. I'm like, mm. it's still like some like computer programs freak out on the hyphen and like you have to change its name and then right. change it back. Like, right. Right, because the hyphen is a special character. So, that, yeah, yep. or it's like a gap, and suddenly it like throws it yep. into like some nightmare yep. where all of a sudden you're just like, don't you see where the future is headed? <laughs> like, there are computer well, programs where that's the character we've used for a DNA sequence gap? Yep. But, you know. But I mean, yeah, it, I, just, I just don't yeah. think we should police it. It's I Yeah, like, I will I personally sell a name or buy a name, whatever, use money from a name? I don't think so, but it's it's more like... I don't well, we have so many people beating down our doors for our new species. I'm, no, but I, I get asked—I get asked multiple times a year to name something after someone for money. And I, for money, and I'm always like, I'm not that kind of ichthyologist. Like, I don't I'm on the wrong list. Pool of species to describe. Like, it's not the kind I am, but like, you know, I have no shortage of times where I get asked, um, or you know, please have one of these and we'll donate money, or you know, that kind of thing. Like. Mm-hmm. And my main point is, I don't. I totally understand the perspective of. I think that's weird or whatever. That especially Kevin was just kind of highlighting. I I agree. It's kind of weird, but I just don't want us to get in the. I don't want us to police it, and so therefore, by not policing it, this includes this group, and so I just don't care. Yeah, it's like leaving the door open. 
Right. Well, I, I don't think I, I don't think that's something you could police anyway in the terms of like like to legislate it in some way, like to include it in the code. But I do think that there is some kind of value to be like to say mm, that's probably not a thing we should encourage. Right. In the same way that there's nothing in the code that prevents you from naming a species after yourself. But if somebody tries to do that. Right. What would be the consequences? People would be like, mm, what are you doing? You shouldn't do that. Right. So it's like I, I don't believe that you should necessarily like legislate it, but I do think that there is value in saying eh, maybe there are sort of accepted standards or like, you know, of conduct. I mean, I would say as an editor of a journal and I don't know if Matt, because he had probably more explicit access to species descriptions at Zotaxa than I do at Copia, but like I would say I get a complaint about once a year and we have about. 10 to 15 species described a year where somebody doesn't like the name of something for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And I might, and I just always tell the author to ignore it. Like it's none of my business to please their thing. Yeah. Like yeah, I mean, read it and, and see what, read it and see what they say. Yeah. Right. And then see if you still want to name it that that's, but you know, right. be aware that someone's already worried. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So take that into account. But I don't feel like it's my job. Like, I mean, if they were going to name it something, with a bad word or something. Yeah, that would be different. Some racist, like something offensive. Some word. Yeah. Right, because it's like the, the problem always comes down to, right? It's like most of the time, most people won't do something stupid or, you know, or, ha- you know, that would cause a problem. But there's always going to be the people who are like, oh, it'd be funny if I could do this. And you're just like, why? This is what screws things up for everyone else who's like not trying to be a troll or a dumbass. I mean, the, the biggest conflict I've ever had in all honesty on this front is that I have reviewed papers where as part of the whole process, they ask me if I'm okay with it. And I say, sure. And then they say, here's this thing. Someone would be paid $50,000 for this lionfish to be named after so-and-so. And And you're like, I don't think this is a valid species. And then you're just like, they already paid $50,000. Like, like it's actually surprisingly like it's, it's amazing how that weighs on you as a reviewer. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, in the end of the day, that thing wasn't described as real. It still hasn't been described. Like, so I wasn't the only one that said reject. Yeah. But it was like a very strange thing because someone paid money somewhere in here to do this and it wasn't recognized in the end of the day so far that, anyway. That is pretty right. weird. But then that, but it's, right, it's that a weird up. pressure. I mean, I felt like a lot mm-hmm. more pressure knowing that like money had been donated not to this person or to their institution, but to like a charity. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's super weird. But then again, right, that's part of the... I mean, that's not the only thing, right? But that's part of the complications where there's like some kind of transactional thing going on here, right? There's like. Right, because you can't submit it without like, oh, unnamed, I'll name it later. No. Right, because then all of a sudden, right, there's these considerations. It's like, oh, they donated this money. It's like, oh, it's for a good cause. But in the end, right, there is that worry that, oh, well, somehow it ends up affecting the science, right? The actual decision making, right? Because you felt a different kind of. Uh, you know, you felt a different kind of pressure. You, there was this other factor that played in your mind when you had to make the call on, like, well, what do I think about this thing? It was a big pressure, though. I mean, I, I was yeah. really surprised how much I felt impacted by it. Like, way yeah. more than, like, a friend or someone at my institution or anything. It was actually the, it was probably the single, mo- the single strongest emotion or feeling or not sure what to do I've ever had when reviewing mm-hmm. a paper, in all honesty. Right. So that's no good. Right. I mean, that's just, it's just another, the concerns, right? Once money comes into play on this kind of thing, it's just. 
Right, but I mean, at the same time, I probably reviewed 30 or somewhere between 30 and 50 species descriptions. I've probably wanted to reject them as not having enough evidence three times, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it's like... Right, because most of the time... Yeah, because most of the time on a species description, you're the person who's describing it or one of the authors is going to be the expert on that and you don't, you know, you don't know it as well and you're just willing to say, I'm, I'll take your word for it. Like, oh, this evidence you've presented, yeah, it's probably a new species if you think it is because, you know, how else, you know, you don't have necessarily the background to judge it or at least to judge it at the level that they're presenting to you. Yeah. Right, well, you take their evidence at face value. Yeah. Right, and so you just have, you're judging whether if that was enough to make that claim, and you know, yeah. especially or if they looked at enough specimens or something, enough comparative yeah. material. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, the argument they made is convincing, not whether or not yeah. you yourself have looked at the spe- material. Right, I've been surprised how often it doesn't matter how much, how expert I am on the group. It matters, right? Like it, by the time you get into Barb or something that was way far afield for me. Okay, mm. my lack of expertise like shines because I don't even know what people are looking at. Mm. Yeah, so, I often like, pay attention like immediately to like how many other things they compared it to. Like, did they get comparative material? Mm. Right, and that's really hard, right? I don't envy anyone that has to describe a new chromis, right? Because what did you say? There's 102 of them, or whatever you just said. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, well, that's okay. Well, that's 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 like, like, the they don't have to get like all 100 of them, but like if there's like if if you think it fits within like right, the these are the five by. that it's close to, then it should be they should at least look at those five or something. Like they're usually they can zero in on the area right. of the tree of interest and hopefully get some and usually that material kind of there. solves itself because the only people who are describing new species of chromis are like you know alan or randall who are like oh yeah you know like they're the world's experts on those things anyway and you assume that they know exactly what other things to compare it to and it's for the people who do it on a regular basis right they just have it down to a science you know they sorry pardon the pun they it's they have the process down right they they have a playbook they run it and they do it you know in a very specific way and so, so- so this yeah, is a little off the to topic of uh, cold fishes, but going along with the species things we're talking about, do you guys, does it ever bother you? I don't know if this bothers me, but I do think it's kind of interesting how we make such a big deal about species concepts and species concept this, species concept that, but in species descriptions, people rarely ever, if at all, discuss the species concept that they follow or that they're using to identify why these are different species other than maybe you know, morphological ones for differences or something. But like, there's just such like no discussion of that at all in any species description. Um, from, a, from a purely practical standpoint, right? It's probably better for them because that's, you know, getting into species concepts is like stepping into a minefield, right? Whatever you do, you're probably going to tick off somebody. I know, but we put so much emphasis and like thought into like, what is a species? And then when it comes to the actual practical part of like diagnosing and describing species like all of that thought kind of like just disappears right it just becomes well this Mm -hmm. one's got 12 fin rays and this one's got 13 right like it's you know we we just don't talk about it like it's just not in species descriptions at all i would say i've reviewed maybe the same kind of numbers about 10 percent of mine actually give the species concept um, yeah where i've dealt with them but i agree that we don't talk about it but Generally, <laughs> the people that uh, that do them have been old school that they don't ever talk about species descriptions, and it's more questionable 
when we get into this world of species delimitation methods yeah. and molecular taxonomy that right. I don't know what I understand your point. Yeah, well, I just kind of wonder. I mean, like, obviously, you always understand your point, but like it gets more complicated as you get into those. Yeah, but I think yeah, I mean, but when as we get into more species delimitation methods, I think it's becoming even more crucial to explain what your concept of a species is. Like, what is the actual concept that's being employed? Is it all just is it all just in the delimitation I algorithm? The pro- I or used programming at the default, and I got this number. <laughs> right? Yeah, my yeah. you know it, it was the, more than X percent uh, you know sequence divergence from their you know from on the neighbor joining tree when I you know you know. I, I just think there's this like interesting divide between the people that spend a lot of time thinking about what a species is and the people that do actually describe the species. And I'm not saying that people that describe species don't think about what a species is, but they don't necessarily talk about what their species concept is in their papers. And especially with the more species delimitation approaches now with genomic data, you are coming down to a basically a equivalent of a morphological species concept, but a, like a with a molecular variation that is defining well, clusters or something, and not well, not to get too uh, like into the weeds on that. Would you say it's that, or was it more of like an operational phylogenetic species concept? It passes this threshold, therefore, it is a species. Well, it's definitely right, an operational a, concept, but it's right, yeah, which is dangerous. I, I would argue, in its own but ways. I would argue that the traditional fin rate counting thing is operational. Yeah, but in a, in a morphological way, in the in the kind of classic morphological species concept a la George Gaylord Simpson way, right? That's like... Well, okay. So this, again, this might just be like too like, you know, um, a, you know, into the weeds and we can decide to cut it, right? But it's like the old school way of describing species is not operational in the same way that like modern methods are, well, the, the way that Matt is talking about operationally, right? Because when we say operationally, it means a very specific thing where it's like if this, and it's a philosophical thing, and I think that's also part of why it doesn't get talked about because the people who are actually doing the, on the ground, doing the species descriptions aren't the ones thinking about the you know the philosophy of science aspects of it and i'm not necessarily saying they should or should not right it's just like a practical consideration the people who are out there in the field collecting these things and describing the species oftentimes don't aren't spending a ton of time thinking about the philosophical underpinnings of what makes a species a species but you know if you're like you know think of any student you have right like if you talk to a student about like what they think a species is like the immediate thing they always come to is the reproductive part like well can it have can it reproduce with x like can you think of hardly any species descriptions where they're like well we took this like thing and we tried to reproduce it with x y and z and it couldn't do it or it could and obviously like that's the problem it highlights the inherent problem with the biological species concept. Oh, yeah, like, I, it doesn't right, really I think the, the biological species concept is super flawed, but it is also right. like the one go-to that most people go to is for their concept right, because, of what a species is. And right, but yet, it also highlights an issue in science, right, which is the most intuitive thing from a common sense perspective may not necessarily be the correct approach, right? And it's like the biological species concept has such like power because it's the one that like intuitively we understand and grasp. But once you actually try to apply it, you realize, oh, this isn't going to work. Yeah, but not, but it, right. <laughs> nice. But I, it's just I just think it's interesting that nobody really talks about what their species concepts are. I just think yeah. it's one of these things where it's like there's just I mean, this a, weird separation here between the species concept type work and the people describing a species. And you can read an entire paper describing a species and right. never hear what the concept is other than 
you know. And I totally get your point. And that might be a thing that, you know, the field should think about, right? But for those times when you've reviewed a species description, there's always that kind of, ugh, am I going to be that guy who's like going to put into the review, hey, you need to explicitly state what species concept you use and then justify it relative to your thing. I mean, we could do that. And maybe that's a, Right, that's like a I do think about that a lot. Like, and every time oh, I get yeah. like something that's monotypic, I'm just like so. Right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and like, I have thought I about mean, it too. You right? know, but it crosses that, my like, mind. Yeah, like, no, no, and uh, I have too. Right, but then there's always that kind of like guilt where it's like, oh, am I going to be that guy? Yeah, it's you just try being the overall editor when everyone else does that, and you're sitting there going, "I'm not convinced." Now what do I do? Right? Yeah. Now I'm going to piss off everybody, the authors, the reviewers, right. and the associate editor. Right. I mean, because here's the problem, right? And this kind of touches on the species concept issue and why species concepts are such, like, you know, so divisive or, you know, cause so much problems on their own. Because in the end, right, we, ironically, even though species are like the fundamental unit of what we do in our aspect of biology, we can't really agree on what it is. It'd be like if chemistry somehow proceeded just fine without anybody coming, without all the chemists coming to an understanding on atomic theory or what an element is. Right, but at some level, it's like the question of whether an element was defined by its number of neutrons or protons, right? Like, no. you know what I mean? Like, there Because is biology a, is messy is the problem, right? It's different right, from that you, basic level. We do level. have isotopes, right? And that's the mm-hmm. question is like, we know what those are. Those are defined. Right. I don't know what to do. Some of the, you know, and the also isotopes, I suppose through decay, they change through time, but like the explicitness of them doesn't. Whereas like mm-hmm. what our species now in 10,000 years might be different. Right. Like and and that's the whole, right. That's the whole problem with the physics chemistry aspect of it. It's, it's easily detectable to humans because it, it it occurs in these discrete intervals that are based on number of protons or whatever, right? And that in biology, it gets messy. But then I also have this argument too, because occasionally, right, and this is one of my bugaboos, which didn't come up in the whole like, you know, airing of grievances thing. When you run into those people who are like, are species real? And it's like, <laughs> a lot of that is always like the yeah, biology is messy and it's not as clean as things in physics or chemistry. But this also gets into the why like operational species concepts are on a philosophical intellectual level very dangerous. It's this weird kind of conceit that, oh, because it is difficult or escapes our ability for human detection as of this moment, it's not real. Yeah. But does that make sense? Right. That's why operational concepts, I think, should be avoided at all costs, no matter what the context. And even old school, you know, sort of morphological species descriptions aren't operational. They may diagnose things. You diagnose a new species based on, oh, it has 13 like rays, not 12. But that's different from an operational like idea, which is that, oh, this is a new species because it's defined. We define the species because it has the 13 rays. It must be a new species. Right. The idea that human detection makes it a thing is the thing that is the very like delicate line that we have to avoid. These things exist in nature outside of our ability to detect it. And then we are merely using these features as a way to identify it for our purposes. But in the end, that's not the sole reason this thing exists. Yeah. No, I mean, it's super complicated and it's something maybe we should uh, 
tackle in another episode, but it, there is a way to tie this back to the polar thing. All right, go for which it. Is, which is, I believe it's Jordan's rule. Jordan's oh, yeah. Rule? I believe it's Jordan's rule. Oh, so what's Jordan's rule? Meristic numbers get large, many meristic features, so the counts of different elements get larger as you get as something grows up colder, the idea being that oh. like, if it's in a stage of growth of fin rays, if it's a little colder, it takes a little longer, and so another one or two pop up. And there's a very mm. strong trajectory, and we see the same thing whether we go from the mid-latitudes to the poles or from the shallow water to the deep sea where you get this mm. thing. So, And it's true of you know, octopus, squid, I don't know, remember which ones they've done it all on, but like, t- like the number of suckers on tentacles all the way through fin oh. ray elements on fish. But it's called Jordan's Rule as you move towards oh. the poles. I, that's cool. I did not know that. And so that does mess these things up, right? If you have a population that's only in the Galapagos, we don't know what it would do with numbers if it worked its way down Chile or something like that. Mm -hmm. So so what else do you guys talk about with polar fishes? What do you guys talk about? Okay. Well, for me, it's like around here. (laughs) For me, around here, it's not so much like polar per se, but just like ice. Like like we were talking about, like like fishes that had been. Yeah, Yeah. fishes of Minnesota, things that live in an area that used to be covered in glaciers, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Like, so... um, there, there is some kind of cool things to that in terms of like North American biogeography of freshwater fish. I'm sure Leo's eyes will glaze over. But there are some, there's some cool things to that like pattern of reinvasions after glaciation, mm-hmm. which obviously used to be really cold and now right. has receded. And those habitats have been freed in the last like million years, and things have moved into them. Um, right, the idea of refugia and yeah. the the constant sort of advance and recession of glaciers and how that's shaped biodiversity is a huge thing at least in you know you know where we are right in temperate north america and right and europe and where we live we have to deal with facts that like for a good part of the year you know the surface of the water that the fish live in are frozen so like and Mm -hmm. none of them have those kind of adaptations that like leo was talking about with the ice fishes so they don't really hang out by the surface they just go as deep as they can get and if the lakes Mm -hmm. or things aren't deep enough they just all die um and if they are of of sufficient depth then they get a more stable temperature um Mm -hmm. as the depth you know, increases and then they hang out there for the winter. But, you know, if your lake or your pool or something is not of a sufficient depth, then those things just don't survive. Yeah. You're just dead. Um, well, it's not even the well. It's not just the stable temperature. That's obviously that makes sense, right? The deeper you are, the less exposed you are to the the surface weather and then ice. But it uh, also isn't there a higher concentration of oxygen as you get yeah. down? Yeah, there's a whole like lake turnover of, events yeah. and everything. Yeah. Yep. And so, yeah, for fish, right? It's you know, it's real sucky, just just like it is for us. And they've you know evolved these various uh, both behavioral and physiological ways to kind of deal with it. But part of that, too, is, like, we don't have the invasive kind of problem that, say, people in Florida have. So, like, for us, we don't have all the invasives that, you know, a warmer climate might have because they don't necessarily survive unless they're invasives from other temperate areas um, like Europe or parts of Asia. Yeah. It's true. My eyes did not glaze over, but I do not talk about any of that. (laughs) Really? You don't talk about that at all? I actually think it's kind of interesting that, like... um, you know, when you start and think about it and you think about like the Great Lakes and stuff, like it, it, as a comparison point to like the African Rift Lakes, like these lakes are so much younger. And when you think about like the number of species of cichlids in like African Rift Lakes, sometimes you kind of wonder like the, 
you know, in terms of millions of years, the this system is actually really young. Like anything living in the Great Lakes now is a pretty recent invasion um, mm-hmm. by any comparison. So recent even that if you were going to like taking averages of like how long it takes a group to speciate, oftentimes people come up with like an average of like 2 million years. And like we're not even really at that, right, for Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. So like in terms yeah. of speciation events, we can't even be there yet. It's essentially the blink of a it's a blink of the eye in geological time. Yeah. I was always thinking about that. Just like how young everything around here, all the populations of fishes and stuff around here have to be these kind of like young populations comparatively. Um, Mm -hmm. Anyway, do you guys make big comparisons between the Arctic and Southern oceans at all? Like I spend probably like half of that whole polar lecture on lecture on that. I co-teach, so I got a cop-out answer for this. I co-teach the fish class, and that's not – I'm not responsible for that lecture. I don't really make a ton of comparisons, I guess, there. I, I do talk about different habitats that the fishes live in, and I do talk about the ice fishes and stuff. But I don't I don't spend a lot of time making that as a comparison point. It's funny because it's like one of these, like, every year I'm going to ask this on the, like, the essay questions, like the difference between the Southern Ocean and Arctic Ocean. I have like this – I even have like a like a Excel – chart whatever like a data matrix of those things like talk about the relative areas of them right like so that the southern ocean's a lot bigger like twice the size of the arctic Uh and like how there's just a ton of islands like gazillion islands in the arctic and no islands effectively just a few in the southern ocean like the Mm -hmm. fact that one of them has a current all the way around it one doesn't like one, one of them has a landmass, the other one, right? It's yeah, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. One has landmass. Yeah, this one, one is cold. Upwelling, right. One doesn't. Yeah. One has nutrients, like high nutrients year round. One doesn't. One has lots of river flow. One has none. Like, but yet, after despite all those physiological different, like you know, they're not physiological, but like physical, bio, mm-hmm. you know, chemical characteristics, like the number of families and the number of species aren't all that different. They're just like what's what families and features are there are completely different, but the actual diversity is remarkably similar. Hmm. Um, and what really makes the big difference is that the Southern Ocean around Antarctica is like ninety five percent endemic, and the Arctic hmm. Ocean is, you know, like twenty percent endemic, right? So like you have all these changes, all these things, and we talk about all that at length. I think it's kind of fun, but like, you know. The Arctic ends oh, yeah. up being, as you said, kind of way younger, and that's part of the ex- probably the explanation for it. Yeah, it's just young. You know, yeah, it is interesting, kinda, right? How different they are. Yeah, no, I mean, it's like when you like look at the fish at the two things, it's like we do have like snail fishes and some skates, uh, probably like, I don't know, eel pouts. I don't think any of the other families go both sides, but like, and probably flatfish are probably in both places. And I, if you go into deep water, like they will, but like, it's actually. You know, I mean, we do have this like very characteristic anti-tropical polar thing that like fish can like live in the Arctic, somehow migrate down through the deep sea and pop back up in the other cold water place. Like, so we do have a, I don't want to call it a highway because it's like the least efficient highway in the world, but (laughs) we do have an option. How many polar fishes are there? Hmm. Hmm. 650 species and 61 families. Okay. That's what my lecture notes say from this year. Nice. Okay. So that's not Is a that lot. from a particular thing, or did you like have to compile all that? I, I live for compiling stuff like that. But yeah, 650, 61 families. That's not a... It's like 0.2% of all fish. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah it's not a lot. A little higher than that, but about that, you know, certainly less than half a percent. And from a family perspective, you're pushing what? Not quite like eight percent of families, give or take. Yeah. So as a family level, as a percentage of marine, I get well. I guess in the Arctic they have marine and freshwater. So, yeah. Well, instead of family, how about like, like at a lineage level? Because are some of you know? Because then it's like, well, are some of the families very closely related, and you know that kind of thing. I'm not saying. I I bet that's greater than fifty. Still, Mm -hmm. I bet it's greater than fifty independent evolutions. Okay. You know what I mean? Because it's not like the Notothenioid sister group is. You know. You know. Well, I guess not because it's going to be like whatever ten families there. So mm-hmm. the outside of the Notothenioids, you're probably pretty safe, though. Okay. Because you're going to get light parrots, and they're in shallow marine water in sub, you know, in around California. Like a bunch of them will be independent. And anytime you have a family with it's a mix, you probably you have at least one invasion, if not more than one. So like zoarcids are going to be multiple invasions into polar waters because it's not like the Arctic and Antarctic are going to be sister to each other. So it maybe is 50 to 60. It's probably, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Like the only major clade that does that, I think, is the notothenioids into either. Because Osmeridae or something like that's going to be all over the place. But since we last gave a podcast, or maybe it happened around the last time, Matt and I are now authors on our first fish family. Oh, yeah. nice. Oh, that's right. The, um, what is it? The glow bellies or no, the labio labracidae. Yeah. Right. right. From the glow belly paper. Mm-hmm. Nice. We got to describe a fish family. People have been accidentally recognizing incorrectly for like a decade or two. Yeah. <laughs> Our proud it moment leads. of, of bookkeeping. <laughs> yep. Hey, you got the job done. You've been, I've been recognizing this fish for uh, at least my first paper where I used it, apparently, erroneously, was 2007. So 11 years of errors on my part. Like we talked about in a previous podcast. It, that's fine making the error. You got to correct it. Yep. Right. How many people get to name a new family of fish that yeah. everyone's going to agree upon? <laughs> yep. Because everyone, and it's that's like the other thing, right? Yeah, you're you're selling yourself short. You're like, oh, I've been making this mistake. It's like you and like every other person who's ever used this name, which apparently is quite a few people. It's nice to have it done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now you have Super a digital cool. copy of it. Well, I didn't save a copy of that thing. No, you didn't. No, <laughs> you just archive so like, it, right? It costs costs you nothing. It costs you a few bytes. But it still feels cool to name a family. I mean, like heck, yeah, it's cool. It yeah. Doesn't happen very often. Yeah. It's definitely cool. There's only, what, 550 of them? Yeah, it's kind of who you are. Yeah. No, that's what's fun about everyone kind of agreeing that this needs to be described. Yep. Because everyone was using it. Everyone just assumed it was fine. I mean, part of it also, right, is coming down to the fact that Catalog of Fishes, you know, within the last few years, finally got around to doing all the family group names. So you can kind of figure out some of these things more easily than you could in the past. But in general, I'm opposed to, like proliferation of names is like I'm making fun of the order thing like I don't think yeah. there is like a, obviously a trade off in there of like if you name something you might want to complete the whole thing but sometimes completing the whole thing is such a nightmare right like right. especially when you place two, one thing in the synonymy and another I never mm-hmm. know what to do when I do that like if I take Day and make it much larger than in its historical sense. These are like some deep water sculpins, and now all of a sudden I make the blobfish. 
the blobfish is in there. And all of a sudden I say all marine sculptors are in that group. Like I have a tendency to want to recognize the Sacralutinae within the Sacralutinae, but I don't feel like mm-hmm. making 17 additional subfamilies just to, for completeness sake. Right, because that it's, wasn't the point yeah. of the paper. If, if I was right. doing a revision of all of them, by all means, maybe I would do that. But like, if I'm just saying this family can't exist anymore because it's nested within this other family, right? It's not the place to do that. But you might as well throw a sacralutinate bone at those people, right? But then the the tricky thing there, right, is like that kind of weird half measure. Is well, then if you recognize this subfamily but it doesn't include everything in the family. Well, what happened to all the other, right there? Somebody has to do something. I realize it's out of the scope of the paper, but it's, it feels like unsatisfying. No, right. right or, no, I totally, that I, it's like, there's this, it, yeah. You just, that's like a long-term correction that's necessary, but yeah. You know, otherwise the problem is that if you don't, you know, I mean, that's, you know, every time I ever do any of this, I'm damned if I do, I damned if I'm oh, yeah. like, yeah, whatever you do, if you'd like do an overhaul of the, you know, classification of a group, somebody's going to be ticked off. I feel like I'm the family level fowler, right? Like <laughs> like I don't just other than no, this, I don't no. describe new families, but I just feel like nobody's going to follow anything I ever did ever anyway, so it doesn't matter. Oh, I, I you know, I have that I, I have know. that thought all the time. What was that? I said no. People follow. Well, no, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, I have that thought too, right? Because a lot of times you're like, you, you think, well, I have to make some kind of change because you know X, Y, or Z. This isn't monophyletic anymore. Or this is in this other thing. So you got to make it consistent. But then there is that thought when you say, well, yeah, you do that, but then people will just ignore it, even to the point where they're, even to the point of saying, well, it's like, yeah, it's not monophyletic, but this is the name we've always used, so we're just going to keep doing it, right? Because so much of it isn't coming down to well what is the name or what should be the name it's you know it's a judgment call like a lot of things oh right i'm every i but it's still like few people recognize epinephalidae instead of seranidae nobody follows my sculpin thing but i do find that everyone now calls them cotoids and doesn't know what to do with it right well you go to like a general list on something and they're just like and here we have the sculpins (laughs) (laughs) everything else is organized by family level name and suddenly they get into mine and they know i'm right because i'm not the first person to say what i said yeah right other people were just like all these other families are nested in here right but people don't like making that change because it's like oh you're messing up all these like established names and inertia is very strong all right so that wraps up everything today on cold water fishes and maybe a little bit more on superheroes and stanley than we would have thought from the get-go uh, rest in peace, Mr. Lee. Uh, so we'd like to end by thanking all of our listeners, and uh, we always appreciate any feedback. Uh, so please feel free to tweet at us with any questions or review us on iTunes. We always appreciate that. Uh, you can always uh, reach Matt at Twitter uh, or on Twitter at Bathytroas, B-A-T-H-Y-P-T-E-R-O-I-S, or me on Twitter at at fishphylogeny, F-I-S-H-P-H-Y-L-O-G-E-N-Y. Uh, or you can email any of us or uh, send text messages or whatever you can do to try and reach Kevin out there in cyberspace. All right. On Google his Plus. Twitter. Oh, Google Plus. <laughs> Uh, you know, oh, don't forget the uh, the the um, the fishmongers uh, a Twitter account yeah, too. Fishmongers, I think that's underscore fishmongers at or at the fishmongers. The fishmongers. Uh, sorry, I forgot that one. Right. So these are all options. We uh, always love to hear that. So any feedback is great. We really appreciate it, and we appreciate you listening. 